Vincent Werbeck's Derby. How are you doing, Saints? Um, it's very brave to have a session after cream tea, pub, sleep, isn't it? Um, particularly if you did all three of those, well done. Um, before I dive into what I want to say for this session, which will be much shorter so we can crack on with some more prayer ministry, is actually, and they've not asked me to say this, but I thank you to you for coming to this. Um, church leader wisdom is that a weekend away like this is worth 25, 30 Sundays in terms of journey together as a community, not just in terms of these sessions, actually, but uh, as much, you know, what happens around the table, the late night fun, the kind of looking at each other in the morning when you think, did I really sleep or not? All of those sorts of things. And um, it's, um, so it's really encouraging when people do come. And it's costly, isn't it? Uh, following Jesus is costly. Being part of a church that's determined to play its part in the transformation of its city is costly. But if you do a cost-benefit analysis it's totally worth it. And you'll never regret it. Safest investment ever. So thank you. Uh, Grab a Bible, turn to chapter 24 of the Psalms, Psalm 24, I should say. Um, And I'm going to read it all um, as we begin. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who, has a clean, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Uh, This psalm is almost certainly uh, one that David wrote uh, for the people of God to sing as they took the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Uh, If you read the story in 2 Samuel 6, there's this uh, moment where the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic, more than symbolic, it was the presence of God in their midst. It was meant to be in Jerusalem. It ended up in someone's garage, essentially. Long story. Haven't got time for that now. Um, And so David takes it back to its rightful place. He puts the presence of God back in the temple of God, which is where it's meant to be. And we think this is the song that they would have sung on what is about a 17-kilometer journey from where it was to where it needed to go. So um, that's just a bit of context. I want to just tease out a few things from it, which hopefully will kind of recap what we covered this morning, make a few more connections, and give you something to think about. I would suggest to you that Psalm 24 is a, a psalm in season for the church. Uh, the world is afraid, and it needs a fearless church. Uh, and a fearless church comes from uh, a church that knows the love of the Father. Perfect love casts out fear, right? Uh, which comes from being the presence of God. And a church that's fearless is one that knows where it's going, knows it's heading home, it's all going to be okay. 
and that uh, death is defeated. And so we can go in his name and in his power and love and serve, whatever the cost, because we know that the lion wins. Um, the motivation for going in costly service to the world around us is only really, the only one that's really going to work is fresh encounter with the reality and presence of God. Did you sense the manifest presence of God even just at the end of that song? Phil just didn't rush a city out of that moment. You can sense it. That's it. That's it. It's just living from that place the whole time going, oh, but I've been with God. I've been with God. So a couple of things to tease out. Verses 1 and 2, what you see here, I would suggest, is a reminder of the omnipresence of God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's his. It's his. He's everywhere. He's in it. As I keep saying to you, what's up for discussion is whether he has permission, invitation to dwell in the heart of, uh, in your heart, in our hearts. This is actually temple language, um, where they're talking about being founded on the earth and the and the, and the seas. Um, don't worry about that too much. But the point is that the whole of the heaven earth temple in the New Jerusalem is the it's heaven and earth. The whole of the created world will be his dwelling place. The whole of creation will be his temple. Uh, one theologian, famous theologian called Abraham Kuyper puts it like this. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It's his, and he wants it back. And he sends you and he sends me in his name and in his power to love and to serve. Um, it's that the kingdom advances not through um, swords and wars, but through washing feet. You, you love people back into life. You serve your city. You wash the feet of your city. That's what you do. And that's how the kingdom advances. Uh, there's a reference I would suggest here or a parallel here with what the Psalms say about us. So just turn right for a minute in your Bibles to Psalm 100. 39. You guys know this one quite well, I'm sure some of you. Um, notice the parallel language. For you, verse 13, for God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. David writes that about us and that about the world. And he knows God. And so he knows that the God who created the heavens and the earth created you. And there's only one of you. And you are of infinite value and worth to the Father. And if that's true of us, then it means that that's true of everybody that lives in Derby and around and Worcester and around. And just as God might want the whole of every square inch back, he wants every one of his children home. Um, and it's the presence of God in us that will compel us. It's the love of the Father in us that will compel us. Uh, moving on quickly, uh, verses 3 to 4 then. These are references to holiness, aren't they? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Now, that's Jerusalem in this context. 
so they're heading to Jerusalem, remember, and it's up a hill. So who can ascend the hill of the Lord where, where we're going to put God back? Well, only those who have clean hands and a pure heart. People who've consecrated themselves again, who've been sanctified through and through by God, who've been made clean, who've confessed and asked God to wash them clean, who've laid down their lives afresh and said, I trust you, Jesus, that when I lay down my life for you, I find it. People who are willing to pay the cost, people who are willing to be holy as he is holy, even in a world that isn't. It's hard. Uh, I would... Uh, encourage you to see an echo of this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Notice what he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. God's looking for people who make themselves holy. He hides himself a little bit at times because he wants to know how much do you really want me? Do you want me enough to stop doing that? And to put that down and prioritize me or not. And then other times he's uber gracious and even though we haven't put that down and keep doing that, he still reveals himself because he's the father. He can do it. But this is the invitation I would suggest again and again to the people of God to sanctify ourselves, to make ourselves clean. Uh, verses 5 and 6, then here's the, here's the sense that David knows that if we do that, God will bless us. God can bless anybody, anytime, anywhere, and he does, because grace is scandalous, he, right? But, but it's easier for God to bless holy people than it is to bless something that's not holy. <laughs> it's just the way it is, right? God will only give you so much of his presence before he'll say, but hang on a minute, what about that? Do you know that? Do you know those moments where you've been praying? You've ever had this, or is it just me, where you're, you're asking God for something, and he's like, yeah, cool. But can we, before we talk about that, can we just talk about that? <laughs> you know, that thing you said the other day, or that stuff you've not dealt with? Because actually, um, I'm more interested in you becoming someone than I am about answering your prayer for something. I'm throwing ideas at you because the psalm points to this and we could do a talk on each of these. I think the verse I want to just focus on is verse 6. I'm not going to say anything more really about anything else, which is this one. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. A generation who seek God's face are the ones that will get to be with God in his holy place. They're on their way into Jerusalem. They're singing this song. And the rest of the psalm is that song. Open you gates. Get, prepare the way. The king of glory is coming. We know who he is. We know who we're with. We know whose we are. And we want to be part of that God. And so here we are. We, we've got clean hands and a pure heart. We're, we're putting things right, both for the people of God, but for ourselves. And actually, they would have understood themselves as bringing God's people and God's presence back fully home after the, uh, the exodus. This is the journey out of Egypt, finally coming to its resting place. The Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem. You and I are heading home. We know where we're heading home. We're going to have a day when we enter through those gates. And with the King of Glory there. And, and how good to be able to go knowing we've got clean hands and a pure heart. We've given our lives to it. So what does it mean to seek? 
The word in Hebrew is the word bequash, and it comes up over and over and over again in the Scriptures. So uh, turn quickly to Psalm 27. It's in here a couple of times. Verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, says David, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He's not saying he wants to just spend his life forever in the temple courts singing songs. I mean, some of you would love that. Some of us would hate that, you know, death by singing. But like, he's not saying that. He's saying, I just want, I want to know, I want to live in an awareness of the presence of God. I want to live rooted and established in love. I want to live in and from the presence of God. One thing I ask. This is what I seek. I want his presence. What's the one thing you ask for? What's the one thing you seek? Uh, Notice a few verses later. He says this, verse 7, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. This is the posture of seeking. Seeking God. Why? Because he knows that in the presence of God is fullness of joy. He knows that's where he's rooted and established. And that's what he's called to. You know this. I'm just repeating it so that before I go home, it's like lodged. Okay. Psalm 40. Keep going. Psalm 40 verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. David is praying these things for the people of God. Why? Because he's the one who was on the hillside as a young boy with the sheep and living in and from the presence of God. He knew him there. That's why he's raised up. He's a man after God's own heart, the scriptures say. One more psalm, Psalm 63. Um, I could have picked loads out. I just picked my favorite ones. Notice what Psalm 63 says. Again, it's David. Now, at this point, he's in the desert of Judah. So this is like, you know, we've had so much rain in Worcester. I can't really relate to this. It should be the other way around. Um, Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Like, how earnest are you seeking? My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I've seen you in the sanctuary. Guys, you have seen God, some of you. Many of you have had moments of powerful encounter, these depths of intimacy. You've experienced his love. You've seen him. You've seen him transform your friends and neighbors and family and colleagues. You've seen him. You've beheld his power. You've beheld, do you earnestly seek more of that? Because what David is saying in Psalm 24 is those are the people that God's looking for. Those are the people God can do stuff in and those are the, God, the people God can do stuff through. Uh, Jeremiah talks about this. Jeremiah 29, that famous passage about to the, to the people of God in exile. He says this, you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all, sorry, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Will you seek me with all your heart? Whatever it takes. Isaiah 55, come to me, all you who are thirsty. 
I'll quench that thirst. This is the same thing over and over again. God is saying, my people, do you want me? Will you seek me? Will you prioritize the pursuit of my presence and intimacy with you, or with me or not? And Jesus, of course, says, doesn't he, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus was saying the same thing. Who are the people who are really up for this? God just needs a few of us. And through us, he can do extraordinary things. Now notice every verse I've referenced, it's a command, not a suggestion. It's, a, it's not a, a, you know, well, if you're feeling up for it, because it's a good day, you had your breakfast, you had a good night's sleep, today might be one to seek. It's like, no, no, just resolve, you will be someone who seeks God. Set your alarm clock, get up. That's what it takes. So, quick, a quick set of ideas to just remind you that there is this invitation from the Father to seek him. And a promise that when we do seek him, we will find him. And, and the reason why God doesn't just make it easy is because he's looking. Do you really want me? It comes at a cost. My presence, fullness of joy in my presence, it's free for you, but it costs me my son. Bonhoeffer, um, in his famous book, um, talks about cheap grace. The danger that we cheapen grace, that we forget that, yes, grace is, means it's all free for us, but it costs Jesus. Let's not cheapen grace. Now, what I'm not suggesting here is religious striving. I'm not talking about religious performance. I'm not saying it's conditional. None of it's conditional. What I'm saying is it's relationship. The Father and his children. And the Father's jealous for us. He, he wants to be number one. Because he knows when we make him number one and put him right in the rightful place, we're liberated. Because the minute anything else takes center stage and becomes an idol, we start sacrificing to that. It will eat us alive. If you've ever struggled with addiction, you will know that that is true. And if we don't make sure that God is center stage and the one that we worship. Something else will vie for that attention and we'll end up off course. Which is why I meet so many people through my chaplaincy role in this posh private prep school who have everything the world can offer. But they come up to me in the car park like Nicodemus in the night. And we have these profound conversations which are along the lines of, is this it? To which I say, no. And to which I want to say what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, which is, you really serious about finding what it is? Then you just sell your Ferrari, downsize your house. Because these things get in the way. You know this. You know all of this. So, how do you do it? Three things I think we all need. We need a posture. We talked about that. A posture of seeking. You need to adopt some practices because you can have a posture all day long, but unless you do something with it, it won't happen. 
So one of my practices, as I keep saying, I just get up early. I, I, it's just pragmatic. It's not, you know, I actually like getting up early. It's not a problem for me. If you're an early bird, you know, it's easy, right? But, but that's how you do it. <laughs> Um, other practices, there's a whole load that you guys can talk about, but um, prayer, a pattern of prayer. I actually like the set liturgical prayers of the Church of England, not in their full format, it's like ugh, indigestion, but like, I, I quite like having some words to say because I don't always know what to say. I have a Bible reading plan. I, I just stick to it most days. I have days when I don't and something happens and there's grace, but uh, fasting, silence, Someone knows their child. Is that you? He's off. Great. Um, silence. Spending time in silence, solitude, Sabbath. These practices, they, they don't do it for us. They just help us connect with God. That's why we have them. So the people who lean into the spiritual practices on a daily basis, weekly basis, they, they're the ones to learn from. Find out. Hang out with people. They might seem a bit intense to you. They might seem very disciplined. But that's what it takes. It really is. And so finally, you need a plan. The ancient church called it a rule of life. Every day, I'm going to get up at this time and read my Bible. That's one of my rules. Not a rule as in restriction, but as in a plumb line, as in a guide. The actual word for rule came from the old word for a trellis in the vineyard. It's like the support structure for the vine. You need, a, you need a plan. You need a rule of life. If you put those things in place, then you will grow and become the you that Jesus would be if he was you, because it's in his presence that we're transformed by the Spirit. So you know all of that, right? But I'm just reminding you. So there's a personal version, and then there's a corporate one. Uh, and some of your rule of life as a church is probably implicit rather than explicit, but you gather on a Sunday gather back together as the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. You can't go to something that you are. You're gathering back together as the church. Why? To practice being in the presence of God together. To practice, to prepare, to pray, to preach, to lay hands on one another. Not anymore. Um, And corporate prayer and worship is powerful. It's formational. So we're going to sing in a minute. We're going to pray. We're going to lay hands on people from afar. Uh, Because that's what we do when we gather in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, to become people of his presence. And to say, again, we want to be your temple, God. We want to be this holy priesthood. But you need to pour out your Spirit upon us again, because it's gone out from us. You need to set fire to our hearts again. We need to lay the altar afresh of our lives and say, God, here we are. Here's our sacrifice. It's not animals anymore. Because Jesus did it ultimately for us. So now it's our lives. And and God sets fire to it. So here's the question. Do you want that? Do you want that? Will you pay the cost? Will you make the changes? Because that's the invitation. And the promise is, if you seek me, you will find me. If you give up your life, you'll take hold of it. It's the upside-down kingdom of God, but it's actually the right way around. So let's stand together, if we're able. And Matt's going to just play quietly for a bit, and we're going to ask the Spirit of God to come. And I know some of you got to collect your children at five, but some of you don't.
And let me reiterate what I said earlier, which is that um, you can practice the presence of God wherever you are at any time. It's not just at this point in our gatherings. And it's not just when we sing songs. Worship is way more than singing, isn't it? I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says that worship is what we do to interrupt, interrupt our preoccupations with ourselves and pay attention to this, the presence of God in our lives. That's what we're doing. It's like it disrupts us. We choose. And the reason why we sing songs when we gather is because it gives us one voice. It gives us a framework. It gives us language. It gives us architecture. Um, but it's not all about the singing, and it's not all about church. It's just that often what we learn together uh, is something we then practice when we're alone. And sometimes what we bring from home is what we add to the fire when we're gathered. It's both and. So we're gathered. 